Stay hungry. Stay foolish. I want to thank our sponsor, Zai Boldly, transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com. While the mechanistic mindset has spurred huge growth and riches for many, it's an approach that has masked a fundamental truth. Rather than a machine, organizations are living dynamic systems that can't be programmed. Instead, they thrive through relationships, adaptive structures, the diverse networks of people, the spaces they occupy, the tools they use, and so much more. For our guests, the answer to a better world lies with the nature of work mindset, a new language inspired by forests and other elements of the natural world. This new vocabulary helps us to perceive work in a more dynamic way, to move away from organization as machine model towards organization as organism view. It is a great pleasure to welcome the authors of this absolutely beautiful book, beautifully illustrated with the most beautiful images to bring the concepts to life. Paul Miller and Shimerick Jaynes, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Aidan. Thank you so much, Aidan, for inviting us. It's so great to have you guys on the show. We've been planning this for over a year and a half, and I, I, it's it's so, so relevant for when you wrote it. You wrote it just before COVID, and as you'll tell us in a little bit about your work with DWG Group, you had been so far ahead of the game. You'd been skating to where the puck was going, not where it is today, at the time you wrote the book, and it's absolutely perfect timing and particularly after COVID, when the world has dramatically changed. But I thought we'd start with the concept you talk about, about this decade you call the decade of courage. So I'd love you to share that with our audience. We'll set up a few little concepts, a few little mindsets before we get into the 12 elements that you talk about in the book. Thanks, Adrian. And um, the decade of courage, yeah, it's one of those things that I started writing about and um, talking about um, in the last decade, um, I just had a sense coming into this decade that it was going to be, we were going to need a lot of internal strength. We were going to need a lot of personal courage and we were going to need to encourage each other. So this is pre-pandemic, pre-Ukraine, pre-yet more climate, etc. But I just sensed that it was going to be a decade that would testers and then apply that concept at the beginning of uh, the pandemic and, and wrote something called the the decade of courage manifesto which was really just trying to get a handle on what was going to change now that the digital world of work had become the essential world of work so Shimrit and I are working in the digital world of work and had been doing that I've been doing that for 20 odd years. And really this idea of the decade of courage was how can we encourage ourselves, encourage each other and getting into this French word cœur, meaning heart. So um, we then put together a whole bunch of different um, predictions around the pandemic. And I was just kind of looking over them for um, just to sort of remind myself and quite a lot of them did come to did come to fruition. Um, localization of work, um, the end of high density offices, 
um, more, much more empathy in the world of work. But essentially, the decade of courage was my, um, I'm not sure if it was a good thing or a bad thing, but a sense that this was going to be a decade when we're really going to need to find courage. I love that you include the words and the etymology of these words and it, it constantly, I love that kind of writing as well, where the author takes the time to do that. But there's a, another theme that runs throughout the book, and it's an important one. I mentioned it in the introduction there, and it's something we've covered on the show before, particularly with D. Hawk and the beautiful documentary we did on his life, which is the end of the mechanistic industrial world. And I have a quote here because this also ties into the idea of a new language for work, because language is not only how we communicate, but it's how we think. And the quote that I pulled is as follows, the industrial age brought with it the narrative of work as duty, obligation and suffering within work situations that were often quite literally toxic. And then when the locations of manufacturing shifted to areas of cheaper labor, communities were frequently left without employment opportunities or investment, again, causing harm. And this intertwines with stuff we talk about later on in the book when we talk about environment and workplace, etc, and migration. But perhaps you'll expand on this concept of the end of the machine age and the beginning of the natural age or the human age. It's almost not the beginning of a natural age. It feels like a return to something. If we think about cycles and, and trying to rediscover something that it almost feels like we've lost as a result of this mechanistic way of thinking. And we know that you look to the industrial age and we saw all of the great things that it brought us in terms of uh, the innovations, the ability to produce and 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 all of those elements. And like we say, at the same time, it did produce harm. It, you know, the idea of the few benefiting off the backs of the many, the idea of the slavery age, which it was also built off the back of. It created this huge separation between humans and nature, between humans and each other, between the way that we see ourselves. And you see the Enlightenment era and this whole idea of rationality and what that brought as well. And it feels like it elevated elements of who we are and the way that we think and the way that we see the world, but to the detriment of others. And so this idea of letting go of the mechanistic mindset and seeing if we can bring in those elements of nature again is almost about that healing. It's not saying we need to let go of rationality, that we need to let go of the idea of technology and progress. But how can we balance it out again? How can we bring the feminine back in with the masculine? How can we reheal that relationship that we are of nature, not separate from nature? So that's, I think, what we mean. And one, you know, you look at the way the factory mindsets, the idea of the the factory line, the idea that you can break things up into their parts and just see them individually, you lose that holistic way of understanding the whole system. And so if you turn to nature and look at ecosystems, you look at, you know, we're going to get into the idea of relationships and purpose and how things are interconnected. You can understand the individual parts, but they exist within that bigger context. So we, we you know, the idea that the mechanistic mindset still exists today you see it when how we approach things like HR. You see it in the idea of the fact that people are burning out so much because they're being treated as if they're robots that can be constantly productive. And you see it in so many different elements of, of how we approach work ourselves, the idea that we can be constantly on. 
And so I think for Paul and me, and not just Paul and me, there are loads of people who who are seeing the world in this way. If we can lay aside this idea of the organization as machine and actually rediscover it as a community of people, of relationships, the relationships that exist within the organization, but also with the outside world, with the local community, with the political system we exist in, with the the local environment, all of those things, it's hard to really get into that if you're seeing things through an industrial mindset, which is about just what's in front of you right now and wanting to fix something and be very binary in the way that you see things. And so that for us is the living systems mindset. It's understanding the life that exists within organizations fundamentally and intrinsically. And we're almost not saying you need to become a living system, you need to become an organism, it's that you are one already. You're already this ecosystem of people and, and you know items and relationships. So how can you find that lens in which to see it? We, Paul and I talk about the idea of it's almost as if you're in a darkened room and it's already there, but you need to switch the light on or you're using, if you're into photography, you're using a particular lens, but the distance is out of focus and you're only focused on the macro. So how can you switch things to be able to see things differently? Where the book kind of came from was nature. So I spent quite a lot of time, I live in the Cotswolds in the UK, and I spent quite a lot of time pre-COVID walking through fields, forests and so on. And there's a particular forest near here called Whitley Copse. And I was just sort of randomly asking myself, Shimri and I were wondering about what book to write together, having written books around technology and work, and, and not really got very excited about, about writing another book that was about AI and general intelligence and um, more intelligent systems, important though that stuff is. And, and I started asking myself, to what extent is this forest different from IKEA or Estee Lauder or HSBC? You know, they're comprising of human beings and processes and systems and interchanges of energy. And I started asking myself, well, if you look at the roots of a forest, it's unseen, but it informs the health of the forest. If you look at the um, life cycle of the forest and the changing dynamic and the whole process of habitation and migration and, and the, the, this concept Actually, the, an organization was less an organization, a machine, and more of an organism and a living system really sort of seemed to come into its own. And I think for me also, and you talked about, um, I think, work as, as sort of duty and suffering. And, and, and I had that. It sort of reminded me of when I started work in my early 20s as a journalist, and I just found the whole process even though I'd got in one on one hand quite a good job I just found the idea that somebody paid you money and asked you to sit somewhere and do something I found it sort of demeaning as a human being and I wanted freedom and I think there's so there was a kind of idea of the organization as being alive but also the idea of that leading somehow to a new world of work that would be freer and more healthy and more liberating, just to kind of give an example. So, you know, you look at a, a company like Cook, the Ready Meals company, 
who we quote in, in the book. And they, um, they're about two and a half thousand people. They really apply. When they read the book, they said that it, it was like they were reading their own sort of management handbook. And, and that actually as an organization, they deliberately bring in people who've been in prison. Um, they have a, an approach to work that is quite different. Um, a lot of devolution of power and control. And, and there's a philosophy there, not of growth and just profitability, but growth that is much more comprehensive. And, and their co-CEO says profit in that is really important because if we don't make a profit, we can't deliver on our purpose. So I, I think those things sort of come together then. Let's get on to the 12 elements. And I just want to show for our audience who are watching us on YouTube, most of our audience, by the way, guys are audio. So I just want to let you know that. But I, I pulled a couple of images that are absolutely beautiful. And you have the golden spirals, you talk about, for example, architecture and buildings designed based on nature to bring in the feeling of nature as well. So I'm just going to share the golden spiral here of all 12 elements just to show the beautiful imagery that you have on in the book. And perhaps we'll start with the concept of purpose, because you mentioned that there Shimmerit as well, the importance of purpose. And indeed, even in a personal level on a coaching level, it's in a very important place to start. So yes, we deliberately chose purpose first, because it feels like it's the heart of everything, the root of everything. And when we started thinking about nature, Paul mentioned there the idea of what's the purpose of the tree. And one of the things that we got into as we started to do the research um, was the idea of purpose within nature is interconnected. You have the tree and it's, you know, you can say its purpose is to survive and it has its seeds and the way that it perpetuates itself and its generations through that. And it's a very internalized way of thinking about it. It's just there to survive and thrive. But actually, the elements of the tree also have this deeper purpose, which is to help with the health of the, the larger ecosystem and the forest. And so the seed nourishes wildlife. The leaves, as they fall to the ground, as they are at the moment in the Western Hemisphere around autumn, nourish the soil. The roots provide so much they help with the soil to keep it together so it doesn't erode away. It connects it. We're going to get into its roots in a bit, but it connects it with other trees through this fungal mycelium network through which nourishment and knowledge and communication takes place across the forest. It's not even getting into the way that it processes oxygen and, and carbon dioxide and all, you know, they say trees and forests are the lungs of the earth. And so there's this constant dynamic between its purpose to survive, but also the deeper purpose that it has in terms of the role it plays in the wider wider ecosystem. And so if we think about organizations, it's exactly the same. And if you think about individuals and teams, it's exactly the same. And this goes back to the idea of the mechanistic mindset almost. If you see the sole purpose of an organization to be profit, help the shareholders make money, extract, 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 and just sell as much as it can and, and have unfettered growth without thinking about that deeper purpose that's how you get to a point where we are today where you've got that harm that's being done to individuals to societies to to the planet to earth and so the question that this 
forces us to ask is what is the deeper purpose of the organization? What does it owe to its people, to communities, to society, to, to all of those things? And how can it have this kind of abundance mindset instead of this idea that everything is competition? And so, Paul, I know that you we talk about you've interviewed Cisco recently. We, we wanted to start with purpose because I think purpose is central to any living um, entity. So even though we might find it hard as individuals to talk about what, what is my purpose, there is a sense in a human being of, of, of purpose and intentionality and, and relevance. And, and, and I think one of the, the sort of flips we're trying to make is that it's not just individuals that, that have that, or indigenous communities, or all communities. It can be 300,000 people working for IKEA. It can be 700,000 people working for Accenture. You can create a sense of, of purpose in a way that is energizing for an organization. And it really, again, comes out of the, you stand in front of a tree, as Shimrit said, and you ask yourself, what is the purpose of this tree? And you could say, well, it's to um, generate and support other parts of the ecosystem. It's there to sequester carbon, etc. But in the end, it's quite inexpressible what the purpose of that tree is, but you feel it. So I think what's interesting is because I've been in the world of sort of management and large organizations for sort of 40 years now. And the word purpose has always been there, you know, words on a page, our purpose is to bring the best X, Y, Z. But actually, I think organizations post-pandemic are starting to look more deeply at purpose for two reasons. One is, if you want to attract people in a very tight labor market, you need to become very relevant and have a deeper purpose and express that. So Cisco are an example. I think they're a really interesting company. They're one of the sort of old guard from Silicon Valley. They, they're 50 odd years old now, you know, back in the days when they were starting companies like that in the back of a garage, lots of kind of cloud technology. But they have now appointed a chief purpose officer in the HR role. And, um, an example of what they're doing is, is applying this at local level. So how can we express our purpose as an organization in, harm, in harmony with nature, in harmony with locality and community? So they've got a program called Veniware, which is working with the authorities in Venice to try and refresh um, the local non-tourist economy of Venice. So they, they have Cisco people who've got portable work now coming to spend time in Venice, bringing their own economic value to Venice. They're working with the local authorities in Venice to see how they can create more dynamism in, in Venice as a community. So I, I, I'm convinced that organizations who are going to express deeper purpose need to express it locally. I think we're moving into a future, getting back into the decade of courage, of locality, community, purpose. And my final point on this is that one of the reasons why we wanted to do the book was that 3.8 billion people in the world are work. 
And, and if you can, they're not all working for large organizations, but an awful lot of them are. And if you can change the DNA of work itself, the leverage effect in terms of social change could be, um, would be dramatic, probably already is. Something came to mind as you were talking, Paul, about a, it wasn't a debate so much, it was a conversation we had at a recent meeting um, at a Nature of Work forum where we were talking, we were exploring purpose in the room. And the question was raised, what about the people who their purpose for work is they just need to get food on the table? They just need to be able to pay the bills and this idea of a deeper purpose for somebody. And it's something that's spoken a lot about Gen Z, for example, the millennial generation, the generation that we we crave purpose in work. But is that a privilege to be able to say you can find a job that gives you deep purpose and the organization can provide that? And then what about the people who just need, especially now with the cost of living crisis, just need to pay the bills? And I think what came out of that discussion was, again, this idea of survival plus your role in the bigger ecosystem is that yes, this idea that you need work to survive for a lot of people. And at the same time, how can you recognize the deep purpose that people within those roles are playing within the ecosystem? So within the pandemic, this idea of the central workers came about, the people that still had to work just to keep society going. Um, And is their deep purpose within society recognized is the question that came to mind. Um, or is it seen as lesser than for whatever reason? And so this idea of purpose and that that dance between survival and and contribution to the bigger system, I think, is, is essential for this as well. I mean, what I would say, though, is, I mean, because we've had this debate, it's like, is purpose a luxury? And, 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 and what I would say is you can have, I think, it's perfectly legitimate for the purpose of an organization, not necessarily to be the purpose of every single per- person working for it. But if you're treated uh, respectfully, if you get flexibility in how you're working, I always remember um, hearing a story from Heathrow Airport. They were doing an analysis of how the, the, the people who go down the runways at night when the airport's shut looking for snag holes how could they use technology to help their way of working? And they followed them and they discovered that actually they didn't need anything to do their job. What they wanted to be able to do is change shifts more easily with their colleagues so they could actually do things more with their kids. This is pre-pandemic. Um, I would say, oh, it's interesting. We, we had a lot of building work went on in our house. And so we probably had about different times, about 15 people uh, coming here and, what was interesting was talking to them about their experience. I don't think their purpose in life was to do electrical work, plumbing, etc. It's part of their, it was, it was a, a function of work. Because in some places they got treated like they were valued, important uh, human beings. And other places where they weren't treated like that, their, their sense of purpose or kind of, the way that they fitted didn't was 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 less rich, and I always ask myself, um, why is it when you go to one co-op store, people in the, that co-op store seem happier than people in another co-op store? They're all doing exactly the same work, but there's something in that particular co-op store is just a little 
supermarket for those people listening. Um, that, you know, when you've got exactly the same, if you like, structure and conditions, but there's a different atmosphere experience, uh, set of relationships. We covered this recently in a show with Hubert Jolie, who was responsible for the turnaround of Best Buy, amazing story. And he's a Harvard professor, and he wrote a book called The Heart of Business. And to your point, he went and he interviewed each of the people and kind of go, what's your purpose for work? And some people were like, I want to, I want my kid to go to college. And, but that became, that became this thing for them to aim for. And then work became the medium through which they, they got what they were aiming for, you know, and uh, I thought that was so valuable. But a nice little segue here is where I, I showed this prematurely the image of roots as purpose. And this is a nice segue towards roots as well. But I, what I loved about this image and why I was sharing it, and just for our audience, it's an image of a tree, but the roots have taken over the entire uh, landscape, the surrounding soil, to almost hold it together, to, to protect it. And what I thought about this was how your purpose, and this is so important, evolves over time. And it's, it's not like I do my purpose work, you know, I, I meet a leadership coach or whatever, and I exec coach and I figure out what my purpose is because it will change because sometimes you know you go through different seasons as a parent even my kids are young I'm more of the breadwinner I protect them I'm around but then when they're older I'm you know dropping them around from place to place supporting them being in a shoulder to cry on etc and I, I felt this image perfectly encapsulated what can happen in work as well and I'm probably jumping ahead here in the book a bit where you as a worker when you're older, can provide protection and mentorship for younger workers as well. So maybe a word on on purpose later on in life and the questions that you can ask yourself as each chapter, by the way, just for audience ends with some questions to ask yourself as an individual and as an organization. And I love this part about both purpose and then um, roots. And in terms of how purpose changed, this also goes to the idea of life cycle. Um, it was fascinating because one of the things we found when doing the research, this idea that uh, younger generations at the moment can't stick in a job because they just want to job hop all the time uh, and can't have any loyalty. Um, apparently, there's research that shows that has always been the case for people in their 20s. It's not new. And as you go out throughout your career, you then start to settle more as your priorities change, your purpose changes, you have a better idea of what you enjoy, what you don't enjoy. And so the generation before mine, before that, before that, um, it was more, it was common to hop around in your 20s. And so I think this idea of purpose as you get into the later stages of a career, it also goes to the idea of roots. There's, um, you know, there's uh, research that shows there's a mother tree that exists. And that's the tree that was first there and rooted. And as it's given birth, for want of a better word, to other trees, it knows which those are in the in the in the forest and through the root system and the mycelium fungal network that connects them, it can pick them out and provides knowledge and communication and nourishment. And then um, it's able to do that. And it feels the same within an organization. And how do you help that knowledge flow so that not everything is retained and held for yourself and this idea that knowledge is power, but actually knowledge is power for the collective rather than the individual. 
And so this idea that as you progress through your career, how are you connecting with other people and sharing knowledge and sharing your insights, but also being open and having that learning mindset to learn from the people coming in as well and the new generations coming in. The idea of reverse mentoring is, is huge and important. I think about one of my own managers that I had. I was working in an exec office before this life in DWG and this work with the COO. And I learned so much from him. He would sit me down and explain concepts and ideas and, and share his knowledge so openly and freely. And he also said he learned from me and my way of looking at things and the questions I had made him think about things differently. And so I think that purpose and how it transitions as you go through your career, it does become the idea of what do I give back and how does my knowledge become institutionalized for want of a better word into the ecosystem so that once I move on it's still there and it's still bringing vitality to, to the to the system and so when we think about roots you know there are different ways of thinking about it you can see it as culture and how you know the roots of the organization and how it was born and giving a strong foundation from which that can grow um and at the same time it's the knowledge system my my background is knowledge management and we talk about the digital workplace and collaboration tools and so how are you connecting people through that root system so that they are able to share openly they are able to share resources and ask for help and learn from each other and then in terms of how purpose can change over time uh, an example that really sticks with me as well is the idea of english heritage they manage so many different properties across the UK, historical heritage properties. One of their purposes is to tell the story of those properties and to, to steward them and look after them so the public can visit. And there has been a huge debate that's emerged recently about the roots of those properties and how a lot of them had a role in the slave trade. And so how does the purpose of English heritage change with that information? Do you tell those stories? Do you help highlight something that was a, a, an ill within society? And so you need to adapt. And it goes to the idea of life cycle as well. You And regeneration, are you renewing? Are you not staying in the same stayed roots, but are you laying down new roots to be able to adapt to, to new um, environments? And so... It's, an, it's a, such a simple and easy flow to go from what's my purpose as an organization, as an individual, to how do I understand my roots, my beginnings, and how I think about myself in the present, um, and also the future. So connected to future generations, if roots is all about connection, how are you laying the foundations and the roots so that the next generation coming into work has a stable foundation to, to work from as well. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, we have these two definitions of each element. And the work definition of roots is the hidden systems, structures and stories that underpin your organisation. And organisations, and I think work itself at the moment is in a period of experimentation. Nobody really knows how to work properly anymore. The sort of like... You know, we don't really know what the function of cities and um, city centres. We don't know what the function of physical in-person meetings are. We don't know what the you know the function of supply chains are. It's there's a lot of confusion in the world of work, and when you confuse, sort of getting back to your roots is 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 always a really good place. It's like kind of let's get back to basics, and I think 
Um, we're in a period sort of as a sort of species, which is to me, it's all about healing and repair. So we, we've, there's so much damage that we know we've done to ourselves, to each other, to the planet. And essentially, we're in a period of repair. And I think the world of work is in a period of repair and restoration. Well, at least he's trying to work out how to get there. And the roots become really important in that. I had a conversation with somebody at Lucasfilm, George Lucas's company. It's 50 years old. They, pre-pandemic, were all together. And during the pandemic, they couldn't be, but they needed to create. And they discovered that they were able to create, but they, but it felt weird to them. But they said, well, hold on a second. We're rooted in creativity. We're rooted in collaboration. What things can we still do? And now, post-pandemic, what they've done is they create in-person uh, intensives. So if you're working on a film, you've got to meet for a week, a month. And then you'll do your kind of in-person creative, but it's it's getting back into that. And, and I'm standing down as CEO of the company, um, the digital workplace group that I created 20 years ago. We've got a new CEO taking over. And, and in that, one of the things I feel like I've been doing, um, becoming chief creative officer, um, is, is trying to remind everyone what our roots are, what our purpose are. We're about human beings, things human beings invent, mostly technology and work, and the interplay of those elements. And so I think Roots has, the, you know, the book and reference to Roots has really helped us as, um, as an organization. You talked about some companies, again, I'm jumping ahead here, but it feels relevant, where they have chief historians to remind people of their roots as well, because... I found that fascinating where if you think about organizations, I mentioned Cadbury, for example, like for me today, Cadbury means sugar and, uh, you know, profits from trying to get people to consume as much as possible. And that's just the way that's my mental model of Cadbury. But when you look at the, the, the history of it and the origins as a Quaker family, you go, wow, how far removed is it from that? And, you know, if, you, if you're trying to inspire people, and engage them in the workplace, knowing the origins of the company is extremely useful. And hence, the historians that are being hired in companies, and that feels like what you're doing with your company. And Cadbury's is a great example, because as you say, at its roots, it probably shouldn't be, in, in, in some areas, the business that it is, which then opens up the opportunity for somebody like Tony Chocoloni to then take the Quaker roots of Cadbury's and say, actually, we're going to create chocolate in an entirely new, much more ethical, much more sustainable way. So we're going to be more Cadbury than you are, because we recall your roots. And I was thinking about this, um, about what's going on at Facebook Meta. And, and, you know, in a time of crisis, you need to come to your roots. And I was thinking also, because you mentioned Chief Historian, so Wells Fargo, is the oldest bank in America, I think, um, started by during the, the gold rush and has endured through different crises over time because it keeps coming back to its roots. And I wonder whether Facebook, Meta, let's call it Facebook, um, has got enough real roots 
to know how to transition? Has Twitter got enough real roots to transition? Or will it actually, will discover, actually, you know what? There was all, it was all above the ground and not enough below the ground. Because I think then I, I sort of compare that with people like Cisco, Microsoft, companies who I can see, they're going to be around in 50 years, 100 years. You just kind of know it because there's a depth and root there. Next is Habitats. And, and again, this you, you've been doing this for 20 years in Digital Work Group. And um, I was thinking about how, how, you know, this is a tough one for me because I, I admit that for innovation, for the feeling, and you talk about some companies who do this, where they purposely design the business, like Pixar, the, the organization, the actual structure for creating these impromptu water cooler moments, if they exist anymore. And this goes back to what you talked about earlier on about cramming people at work where they actually have no white space for creativity is so counterproductive. But when it comes to habitats, you ask, what are the physical, digital and natural workplaces in your work, in which you work best? And we have to remind our audience of the fact that you wrote this work pre pandemic, which was so uh, predictive of the way the workplace was going. And the pandemic was just an, an accelerant for a trend that was happening anyway. But I'd love to share your thoughts both on the habitat, and then actually about, well, how do you create those moments of different silos within the organization coming together, bumping into each other and sharing their ideas? So first of all, just to say that the pandemic arrived at a time where we were able to, in, in large ways, take work and make it digital and portable. So imagine if the pandemic had come 20 years before. Huge, huge problems that we didn't experience. Actually, the technology stood up, the internet stood up. Um, and one of the things that, um, so, so work was already, work had already left, at least in, in knowledge-based, office-based work, had already left the office in terms of its capability. It just wasn't in the cultural habit of it. It's like, if I can't see you in the office, you're just going to be basically sitting around watching Netflix. Um, as we've discovered, when people have been given the capability to work in a flexible way, what they actually become is a lot more productive. And the problem you have is one of people working too, too much. So, so but, but I think because we've now got choices around workplaces, you can then start to get this idea of habitat. I mean, when my dad went to work, you know, if you know, when he left his job at the end of the day, went home, that was it. All the stuff he needed, he was a salesman, was in the was in the office, and you went home, and then the next day you picked it up. Nowadays, we've got this capability to work in a far more adaptive way. And where I would say, but you want to, we all want to be in our right habitat, which isn't just a work habitat; it's a life habitat. And I think one of the reasons why, I think in every country, people are reluctant to go back to the way they worked pre-pandemic is they've discovered that their overall habitat of their life is, is more fulfilling and rewarding if they get some level of flexibility. So people are talking about feeling, um, these are all generalizations and tendencies, feeling healthier, they're getting more time with their families, with their children, with their parents, 
they're getting more time for them for, for themselves and they're able to 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 do the work on the other hand i think there is a concern a legitimate concern and i've got this joint to people at mckinsey's like are we missing something special that we had that we've now don't realize but we might have lost it it's 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 almost like you can create what we call digital intimacy and digital connection so i mean we're having a conversation now i don't think if the three of us were together physically it would be different but it would it be fundamentally better or just uh different and so you can build large levels of trust collaboration but i think organizations are experimenting with uh, i mentioned uh pixar lucasfilm um but then you've also got um organizer i mean we as a company um twice a year all the management team in 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 europe and north america all live together for a week we call it big brother house so we have this intensive period and i i, I did a blog called you know we don't work together but sometimes we live together and and it's this idea you can create sort of moments or experiences that that matter in in work um i i wonder whether the whole water cooler things a bit of a myth because I, I mean I, I i i i i feel that you can be just as creative if you give people more flexibility but i don't think any organizations that i've come across including our own um want not to be able to meet each other i mean a couple of days ago we had nine members of the team just came for a team co-working day here at our home, you know, different people in different places. It was really lovely. Yeah, this is a, a area dear to my heart because I also do research and writing for DWG for their papers. And I did a, a piece on hybrid working last year, which looked at this this question: How, do, as amongst many others, how do you create moments of creativity and connection if you're hybrid or dispersed or reliant on the digital workplace? And to me, it comes back to purpose again, bringing it back to the first element. But those water cooler moments happen because the water cooler exists and you have somewhere to go and to gather. And I think also there's no guarantee that those chance meetings always necessarily lead to creativity. It's also do you have a culture of openness? Do you have a culture of inquisitive in um curiosity? Because I can't say the other word I was about to say. Um and you could have people in the same office who never speak to each other, even if they're at the same desk versus people who are on the other sides of the world. But because they have developed that culture of curiosity and checking in with each other and playfulness that they're able to create in a way that maybe the people in the same office can't. And so the question to me then becomes, how are you creating those touch points within a digital workplace where people can mesh together and play together and experiment together? And there are ways of doing that. You look at, for example, coffee roulettes, where you bring random people together. You need to be intentional about it and create those moments. So how you can use coffee roulettes. We know that um, one of our members, I don't know if I can say their name, so I won't say it, but one of our members have invested really heavily in an ideation platform. And they're a global household name. And they bring people from all across the globe together in this one place and with a purpose, which is they have a challenge, they ask people for ideas, and out of that creativity just flows because people feel like they can share it. And then that leads to innovation and new ideas and, and all the rest. And so 
it feels like if you have the mechanistic mindset for creativity where or you know that idea that you always need to be productive and your everything is scheduled and you're constantly in meetings and focused on what's ahead of you it's hard for creativity to flow from that that's true whether you're in person or or digital as well and so are you creating space at the beginning of meetings to check in with each other to say what you've been up to to let ideas and randomness and tangents flow and it's this idea of unstructured moments of creativity where you have no idea what's going to happen it just explodes because you have a chance meeting of people um in a coffee roulette or at the beginning of a meeting just catching up and saying hi what are you working on at the moment before getting down to the agenda and then the more structured okay we're going to gather right now with purpose because we have something that we need to solve and making sure you're harnessing the diversity of the organization off that and you know there's an inclusivity benefit if you're in person and relying on creativity if you have people who are disabled or can't travel or are introverted like I am um, or have different things stopping them from participating there in the room in real time you might feel like you're being creativity but you're also missing on a whole range of ideas contributing to that And so the digital workplace allows you to be asynchronous. Not everything has to be real time. People can think and then contribute. You can have that oscillation between solo work and thinking and then coming together. And so it doesn't replace those water cooler modes. I think like Paul was saying, there's still such a huge benefit for the chemistry that you create in person. But I think it's both. It's and and. It's getting away from that binary. It's either in person or it's digital. It's how can we make the best of both creativity beautiful segue for biodiversity as well because diversity in the workplace is not about gender or race it's about neurodiversity as well and you talk about the importance of biodiversity in nature as well and you say combining an understanding of habitats with an appreciation of biodiversity helps us to recognize that not everyone's experience of those habitats will necessarily be the same. This is why culture is so important, you say. An organization's cultural habitat tells you whether you belong or whether you don't. I thought that was such a great excerpt. But it also brings to life this importance of those, as you said, those different environments, including a digital one that actually some people thrive in that. Like we saw that during the pandemic, some kids that would normally not be so uh, outspoken or people in the workplace were thriving because they were in their own habitat. And I thought that was such a, a telling perspective as well. So maybe you'll take it away on biodiversity. I've just finished. We're in the process of editing um, a piece of research on the inclusive digital workplace um, and accessibility and digital ethics. So Paul, I'll share a bit and then hand it over to you for your thoughts. But um, the idea that culture and habitat can help breed diversity and and has that sense of whether you belong or not is crucial you might have I was having a conversation with a colleague the other day and the idea of how in the same space one person might feel incredibly safe and like they belong because they see themselves reflected in the people around them or they just they feel they fit like a puzzle like they're on the same frequency as everyone else and then someone else in that same room for whatever reason won't feel safe and will feel like they're holding themselves back and they can't express themselves and it to all intents and purposes it's the same habitat but one person feels safe and the other person doesn't and 
you know, the beautiful thing about biodiversity and learning from nature is that you see the greatest biodiversity where different habitats clash, not clash, it's the wrong word, where they meet. And so where you see, for example, water, a water edge and a forest edge coming together in that space where the water and the soil are melding and, and the kind of land habitat and the water habitat are coming together, you see species flourish like there's so many different types and it's this it's called the edge effect and it's the same in organizations if we're talking about creativity you get the most creativity when people from different habitats or ways of thinking and that might be ethnic that might be religious that might be socio-economic it might be an IT person meeting with a marketing person when they come together that's where though that edge effect happens where you see innovation and creativity flourish and so how do you help people feel safe so that they can experiment and it's so much a part of that sense of belonging one of the things that came through in the research is we at the beginning we were talking about the, my name the pronunciation of my name and it's a very simple thing but you knowing how to pronounce it and having checked on my linkedin profile how to pronounce it helps me feel like I belong in this space. If someone gets a little bit more friction, if someone continuously is pronouncing incorrectly, and so I feel like I don't quite belong. And it's a very simple example, but it's those elements that help smooth things over so that you feel that that smoothness instead of that scratchiness and that itchiness and that that friction that you that spikiness it's a very embodied thing whether you belong or don't it can be hard to describe and, and understand from a rational perspective and so culture can help that flourish if we're trying to think about the different species that exist within an organization if you want to use that word how do you create a habitat that feels safe for them and that is it's through culture it's through helping people understand that they can experiment they're not going to be punished if they have an idea that's seen as stupid instead of everything is a, a relevant idea and understanding what are abusive behaviors what are toxic behaviors we're getting into relationships how to power dynamics flow um and deliberately intervening at those points where there is toxicity where there is stickiness and trying to smooth things out and so to me, there's so much to say about biodiversity and the microaggressions that exist and all of those things and starting to smooth them out. And I think we're reaching a point where the desire for it and the need for it is just kind of bursting out of people. It's a tough one as well, because when you have some people who work in an environment and like you said, you're totally unconscious of of how somebody else is experiencing that environment. And when you find out sometimes you're like, Oh, my God, or you might have been saying something and upsetting somebody and totally, like, beyond your consciousness, because of privilege, sometimes and we did a multiple part show recently with Joan C. Williams, on bias interrupted. And it was exactly about this that, you know, if if most of the team of an organization play golf, or they're all rugby heads or something like that, that it creates a, a, a bond between them and the person who's not or somebody has a kid and they can't literally afford or afford the time to go out after work means they can't be part of those clubs and they feel excluded then as a result. And there's all this stuff that privilege blinds us to. 
And like you said as well, like somebody with purpose, purpose is in a way sometimes a privilege as well for for many of us. Paul, I I think I'll I'll come to you next uh, to tee in something that Shimrit teed up for us, which was relationships, because I loved what you said here. People with a living system mindset are more likely to nurture empathetic, empowering relationships with their colleagues, and also with those outside the organization. And in here, you mentioned, for example, steeple analysis, and donut models, etc. There's lots in this, perhaps you'll take it away. Thanks, Aidan. I mean, um, there's a story that I think brings this one to life, the idea that organisations as organisms kind of rewire, recalibrate the way... I mean, my car doesn't have any relationships with other cars, whereas our garden has interrelationships with everything else it's next to. So it's a fundamentally different experience of relationship. And the story that brought it home to me was there was a financial services company. And in January of 2020, they had people in China who were experiencing this thing called COVID. And they were at home. There was this thing called a lockdown. And the, the 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 office in somewhere in the US was was trying to sort of tell them what to do. And what they discovered was that people in their China offices were in tears. They were they were scared. They and and so what they stopped doing was telling them what to do and they started listening. And and one of the words of 2020 in the world of work was empathy. And and so you had, I think, a systemic change in the world of work where empathetic um, listening became part of the work experience. I think it's an interesting question as to what we've where we are now with that, because I think there's been some backsliding in different organizations and some pretty appalling stories. However, I think the empathetic organization, the relationship-based organization, has got fundamentally more sustainability and enduring power. You know, if you want to create, if you want to retain the best uh, uh, people in Uber, don't treat them like cogs in a wheel. You know, treat them actually better than, it's a, it's a bit like the, Cho- the Tony's Chocolonely versus Quaker story. Uh, and there's a story about um, this that kind of comes to mind for me was um, uh, I was talking to somebody called Carly Scott Murphy, and she works for Microsoft in Australia. And she was talking, it's partly related to purpose, but it's partly a reflection of this deeper change in a healthy living system organization. And she's in her uh, mid thirties. And she said, in the current environment there of culture and leadership under Satya Nadella, who I think is one of the great CEOs in the world at the moment. She said she wants to spend the rest of her working life at Microsoft so long as it keeps her interested and motivated. So the opposite of the great resignation is I have found my habitat and my habitat is here. It's like if you find your thing, if you find your place, if you find your relationships and they're kept um, nurtured and watered and crafted, um, then why would you want to go anywhere else? Because what are you leaving for? 
<laughs> we're not gonna get near all the content that's the book and I want to let our audience know I've skipped over the metaphors of the animals so there's so many beautiful metaphors from nature and I'm leaving that f to you to find out and the beautiful imagery as well throughout the book is is consistently there I'm showing people here on YouTube um, just absolutely beautiful imagery throughout the book it's really like a coffee table book but with these beautiful nuggets of information and case studies and metaphors throughout but let's jump to life cycles because on the on the show we talk a lot about organizational life cycles and the ha how they're becoming shorter and shorter and friends of the show are Mark Johnson for example the co-founder of InnoSight with the late Clayton Christensen and his company InnoSight looks at life cycles of organizations on a regular basis and the latest analysis by InnoSight shows the 30 to 35 year average tenure of the S&P 500 companies in the late 70s is forecast to shrink from 15 to 20 years this decade. Companies lifespans are getting shorter, which is very relevant to this chapter. And I was shocked the other day, I don't know if you've seen the latest research on bees, but bees life cycles have halved since the 70s as well. So this is actually affecting, it's not it's just like, it's affecting every aspect of life that life cycles are getting shorter. But that needs that means we need to change our mindset to a more nature of work mindset, but also a more natural mindset. Absolutely. And it's, uh, it's also a nice segue into regeneration after this from life cycle. But um, the idea of it, the one of the, the ways that we started the chapter was looking at lifespan and life cycle in nature and the idea that you have something that has maybe a natural lifespan which is it goes through its, if it's able to, and it's healthy, it goes through its natural lifespan of birth, maturation, and eventually it, it dies off and then feeds back into the ecosystem in terms of it's it kind of how it nourishes it through its body. Um, but then you have things that end prematurely and aren't able to complete their natural lifespan. And that could happen for a whole host of reasons. Um, and so it almost raises the question of what is the natural lifespan of an organization and do we know what that is? Um, and it seems that if they, again, if their lifespan is getting shorter, why is that? Is that something, is a sign of health? Is it a, because it means there's actually a more constant regeneration and churn of new ideas and, and new things coming through and actually the purpose of the organization has reached its natural end and it just is, it's time for it to die off. Or is it a sign of a deeper ill health within an ecosystem where an organization is reaching a premature end and actually it's something that's traumatic um, and is traumatic for a community, for the organization itself, for the people involved, for the services it provides? And so I think it asking that question and seeing organizations through the lens of a life cycle, it forces you to ask the question, where in our life cycle are we? Are we very early on? Are we a startup, for example, where we're we're trying to soak up loads and loads of different resources and, and get ourselves up and running and lay down good roots so that we can um, survive in the long run? Are we an organization like DWG, for, the, for example, which is in a, a life stage cycle where it feels like it's been maturing and it's now ready to go to its next level of maturation through growth in order to be able to survive and not die prematurely? Are you an organization like Shell, who has been around for however long and done whatever, however you want to judge Shell and the harm it's done? Is it reaching an end of a lifespan now? Because actually its purpose is coming to an end. 
or can it regenerate into something that isn't necessarily greenwashed but actually provides health to the bigger system and so I think it becomes a crucial way of understanding where you are as an organization and gives you the language in order to be able to do that um and I think one of the things that we also don't necessarily really spend time on is the death of an organization and what that means and how do you steward something to its death there's an organization called stewarding loss which takes the idea of um, a living system and a living organization and says how do you deal with the ending inside of an organize of an organization we spend so much effort on how an organization is born but we're afraid of death it feels like a taboo so how do you start to bring that language and the language of grief or celebration and ritual into the the end life cycle of an organization so that it's done in as healthy a way as possible it feeds into regeneration as well which feels like a nice segue with regeneration which is probably one of my favorite elements because i i i love the idea that when you start to see yourself as actually alive you can go through regeneration. And, um, you know, people, I think, living what we would consider rich lives will go through stages of evolution. The person that, that you are at different stages changes and there's a regenerative process. Um, and uh, BMW, obviously a long successful history as a car automotive manufacturer when they were um uh, recording their 100th anniversary they then made they got younger people in the company to make films about the next 100 years for bmw what might that be like a vision piece what are we really about are we about creating cars that people buy and go in or are we about the movement of people are we about transportation? And whichever way humanity goes, we will we will keep moving. Uh, probably not certainly the extent that we've been doing historically in the last 50 years, but there will be. So, so that vision is a vision that is a regenerative vision. And I think some organizations, and we get back to this whole, I'm fascinated to see what happens to Facebook and Twitter. I've got a feeling that they might just simply disappear. Or, or, or become so um, sort of decrepit that actually there isn't a regeneration, or maybe there will be, but it's certainly they're going to have to go through. And I just then compare it with um, uh, organisations like IKEA, um, Estee Lauder, Wells Fargo, I've mentioned. I'm not saying that they're fundamentally better organisations, but, but they've got the capacity to renew and regenerate. Um, I think Accenture is a really interesting example. There's 700,000 people in that consulting company, and it's gone from about 400,000 pre-pandemic to 700,000 under Julie Sweet. She's probably one of the most successful um, female CEOs in the world. And there's a, there's, a, there's a kind of story of regeneration during a time of, of change and development for them. Um, and, and I do look at some organizations and think they've got almost like they built in the regenerative model. So if I look at something like Mindful Chef, who are a home delivery re recipe company, built started net zero, started by donating meals to 
um, deprive communities from day one, B Corporation from day one, you know, all of the kind of um, requisites for sustainability. And that certainly that's in DWG, that's what we're trying to do. It's been through an entrepreneurial phase through 20 years of me, and it's now entering a more growthful, maybe more commercial, more focused phase of development for the next 20 years. And I asked myself, there was a bunch of consultancies started at the beginning of the last century, like McKinsey, PWG, PWC, EY. Why couldn't DWG be one of them at the end of this century? I'm not saying it will, but if you don't have the vision of it, then you 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 you're kind of you don't have anywhere specifically to go. And on regeneration, I think if I build on what Paul has said, which is the organizational view. One of the things we've tried to do is build the the kind of nested layer of a system where you have the individual, the team, the organization, and then society. And so there's an, an additional element of regeneration, which is about the individual and about the personal and about your own regeneration and how you apply. It's called nature's adaptive cycle. But it's if you apply, think about the seasons, you have spring as birth, you have summer as that period of growth, you then have autumn, which is maturing, and then you have winter, which is that rest and kind of just creative destruction, which then paves the way and makes space for new life and all the rest. So it's the idea of life cycles, but it's also the idea of regeneration. And so how do you apply that adaptive cycle which you see everywhere in nature, from ourselves to to the earth, to an organization so that it can regenerate? And how do you apply it to yourself to think about what season am I currently in? I've been open about the fact that I love and reframing it as a winter year where I needed to rest has helped me then think about this year has felt much more of a spring year for me where I'm learning and soaking up knowledge. And then how are you running your meetings? Are you allowing those that cycle where you have the, the birth phase and then you have that more reflective phase of winter so that people can regenerate? Or are you going back to back like people are constantly in spring and having to be productive? Even down to how you think about the, the life cycle of the organization over a year, are you building in winter so that people can regenerate and have that reflective time? And I think that adaptive cycle as a way of understanding regeneration is crucial to the living system mindset it goes to the heart of how nature breathes constant life and vitality into its systems and so I think if there's almost one thing that listeners take away it's the idea of regeneration and the adaptive cycle and trying to think about how they apply it to their organization to themselves to their families to their teams to their meetings uh, their projects even so yeah it's like a crucial, crucial element of a living organization. And it isn't just us that came up with that. You have um, Caproff, you have Giles Hutchins and Laura Storm who talk about this and have their own way of looking at the world. Uh, Carol Sanford, there are loads, loads of people who have harnessed the idea. I have an image for health that, that you might speak to. And again, just with a bit of empathy towards our audience, I, again, just one of these beautiful illustrations that you had done for the book. I'm sharing it on the screen there. And maybe you'll give us an overview of the importance of health because this probably goes back to the original reason you started the Digital Workplace Group in the first place was both for personal health, the people who work in an organization and the organization and the greater health of the ecosystem. We spend a lot of time, at least during my working career, looking at technology and uh, in work. And in a way, 
if you think about it, they're, they're energizing effects in work. So if you breathe technology into an organization, collaborative technologies, intranets, HR systems, mobile apps, et cetera, you're connecting. So work is a more energized environment now than it was 50 years. So we start off with purpose and we end with health. And the reason is that they're probably kind of fundamental. And as I think, as you've said, Aidan, the, the health is the, is the overarching aspect. And we're so used to talking about financial health in organizations. But if you really want to look at health, so for somebody like American Express, their ability to recruit the best people, so kind of people health, skill health, talent health, um, the ability to innovate as an organization, the ability to adapt. Um, uh, these are all aspects of a healthy organization. We think of it as an individual, and in a way, the element before it is intelligence. And once we, we, we kind of veered away from talking about something called consciousness in organization, but if individuals are alive, which we are, and we have consciousness, if the organization is alive, does it have consciousness? I think it does. Somebody said you could take all the people out of Adobe and Adobe would still exist. There's a sort of sense that there's a almost like a, a consciousness to an organization that that is sort of sits across the whole organization. And I think it's something to do with health becomes part of raising our own, if you like, work consciousness as a as an organization. I think we'll leave it there because there's I, I want to leave our audience intrigued. It would be make a beautiful Christmas gift, by the way. It's uh, for people who struggle to read who like me, I have the shelves behind me. <laughs> so many people have the bedside cabinet with a load of books. And it's just like a to do list that never gets done. But you can pick this up, read it over a coffee or an espresso, and really enjoy little tidbits at, at your leisure as well. But before we finish, I have a quote that I picked that I absolutely love. And I just wanted to share it. One of my practices is the pin. And I picked the pin. And I thought it would be absolutely perfect. It's like a mechanical raven. And it's this idea of the, the natural world and the mechanical world at this interface at the edge effect that Shimri talked about earlier on just that transition period, that we're remembering our roots, we're remembering where we came from, as well. But before I give my final quote and hand it to you guys to close. Where can people find you to find out more about your work, keynotes, consultancy, etc.? You can come to um, digitalworkplacegroup.com um, or natureofwork.com. And, and if you're kind enough to want to get the book, you can get it at natureofwork.com or on the usual online platforms, bookshops, etc. I have a quote, and I thought it was very apt for, for the book. It came to mind several times as I read throughout the book. I'm going to quote that, and then I'm going to get the heck out of your way and let you guys close today's show. It comes from Robert F. Kennedy, and he said in 1968, of the closely related gross national product, he was giving out about the way we measure gross national product. He said, it measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short, except 
that which makes life worthwhile. And that consistently came to mind as I read throughout this beautiful book. What about you guys? I'll come to you one at a time, perhaps to close today's show. Paul, you're unmuted there. So how about you? Well, I love that. I mean, most of what matters can't be measured. I mean, love, relationships, um, empathy, care. Um, What I would say is that your organization doesn't need to do something to become alive. It's already a living system. And if you can start to look at your organization through that language, through those, through that lens, as Shimri put it, then you will see you, your world of work differently and it will change you and it will change the way you work. Shimri, we'll leave you with the final word on today's episode. Health is such an important place to end and it's it's the health of the organization. I think one of the things that is also deeply important for us is it's the health of the planet and nature. Ultimately, why would you want to do this and think in this way? And I think it is, we spoke about healing. And I think it's that healing of relationship um, between each other within organizations. I think the planet itself is trying to heal, which is kind of what we're seeing at the moment. And if we want to think about how not just we as a species survives, but how do we help the planet thrive and we thrive with it, this way of thinking, this living system mindset is crucial. And I think part of nature of work is the nature of ourselves and rediscovering that and rediscovering ourselves that I am nature and just saying that you feel something shift inside of you um, that completely changes the way that you see your work and your colleagues and your purpose within work. Um, and so I think that mantra of I am nature for nature of work is is crucial. Um, and it changes you. I'm changed by the process of having written this completely changed. And I'm trying to keep changing. <laughs> so I think it's that it's being open minded and open to, to regenerate yourself as well as your organization. Beautiful, beautiful way to finish authors of the nature of work, the new story of work for a living age. Paul Miller and Shimreet Jains, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Aidan. As always, thank you to Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com and I'll see you soon.